Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, good morning, fun seekers. It's a Wednesday, and that's the real world of Money Day, first Monday of the month, with our friend Fred Dashevsky of U.S. Coin Capital. You're going to meet Fred in just a second, and uh, we're going to have a fun time talking about the world of money, and it's a bit interesting, uh, to say the least. And so if you care to join us, you can do it this morning, 888-663-6386. Email is patrick at oneradionetwork.com. Later on around noon central, a couple hours from right now, Bear Paul Lando. He's up in the Northwest. Interesting fellow. Fellow so excited talking to him. And we're going to talk about all kinds of things in the world of health, wealth, and well-being. A regenerative farmer, very interested in the spiritual emotional, mental component of healing. He's a good one, and he'll be here at noon. We'll take the day off tomorrow, and then we'll be back with It Takes a Long Time to Get Young, our Friday um, presentation of uh, keeping your body happy and younger for longer than than you're supposed to, according to the books, uh, unless you look at the Bible, which was 144. Uh, I've had, well, this Christmas I'll have 75 Christmas is under my belt. So as you can see and hear, uh, I don't buy into the whole age thing, and uh, I'll teach you how to do that because it's pretty easy. Um, you, you might as well stick around for a while and have some fun and uh, <laughs> figure out how to get out of this popsicle stand and not reincarnate it back here. That's what we talk about. Mr. Fred, just back from New York City. Fred Jaszewski, good morning, sir. How are you? Well, good morning, Patrick. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. You're looking great. I like your little flag back there. Boy, look at you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Proud new backdrop and a little upgraded equipment yeah. to try to make our programming a little better. Yeah. Pro, uh, uh, proud to be an American. You should do a country song. You know, proud Absolutely. To be, proud to be an American. But well, we're having a good time here in, in uh, Texas, Florida, Oklahoma. There's some states that are just telling Joe to pound sand. And he's having some courts agreeing uh, with Texas and Oklahoma as far as vaccine mandates. Big, a big uh, 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 ruling just out uh, yesterday. Uh, Supreme Court, no, not Supreme Court, but I'll find it here. Here it is. This is um, uh, D- U.S. District Judge uh, Terry Daughtery, a uh, um, uh, federal appeal uh, court, blocked a federal COVID-19 vaccine mandate for healthcare workers Tuesday. The ruling has nationwide implications. Our um, uh, constitutional guy, Charlie Sewell, I emailed him and I said, can they appeal to the Supreme Court? And he said, no, because the judge ruled constitutionally. Very interesting. And this this really plays into the whole monetary system, right, Freddie? Because these mandates and lockdowns and all this stuff, it certainly affects business Tell us about your experience in New York City. Sure. Yeah. Apparently, a little bit of pushback coming from parts of the country. Um, you know, South Carolina, where I am, has been very haphazard about the way that they've handled, uh, you know, the restrictions. So there was a period of time where uh, I'd say a, a large portion of the people that were out in public were, you know, masked and uh, following those guidelines. And then it seemed to have faded away and you know, we had the new variant come up and a few people kind of went back into that mode, but it wasn't quite consistent. But for the most part, 
you know, it seemed to me here, it was basically a matter of choice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I visited New York recently, and it was very different. Uh, it Tell was us. obvious that really? people were following um, more of a requirement. Like every public place I visited from, you know, walking into a bagel store to uh, any restaurant, 95% of the people were wearing masks. And if you weren't, I mean, you were getting dirty looks from everybody, the employees and really? other people in there. Wow. And, uh, you know, friends of, of mine and I were considering going to a concert at a local concert venue. Uh -huh. They had a requirement that you provide evidence that you'd been vaccinated. Not to get, only it, been to tested, get in the concert, Fred. Would not let you in the door into the building unless you could show them your card. Now, was there any of that in the restaurants or the bagel shops? Were they vaccine passport thing or were they just masks? No, um, nobody asked, but it, it just seemed the mentality up there was considerably different than it is here in South Carolina. I was just struck by the vast difference, you know, in how lax it is down here uh, and how people seem to be working from this point of view down here as a matter of choice as opposed to a matter of mandate. And, you know, I, I find mandates disturbing, and I'm, I'm glad there are yeah. political pushbacks and legal pushbacks. Uh, you know, it, it always raises the question of how far the government authority go. And it's interesting how it's impacting the economy. Uh, Chairman Powell has been testifying, and the Fed has been testifying the last couple of days. And, you know, part of the problems that they're facing, of course, the inflation issues, which have been pretty interesting to follow. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more, too, if I can. But, yeah. um he is also considering uh, the results of what happens as we have another wave and, you know, will it cause another slowdown or will it cause more economic activity that will cause the Federal Reserve to change, you know, its modus operandi. You know, it's an interesting environment when we're facing economic problems, but then we also have these health issues that are now prevailing, you know, part of the economy. Let me ask on, on the New York thing before. before we leave New York, on all the different shops were the masks mandated, Fred, or were they just kind of encouraged? They were encouraged. Okay. Uh, you know, I didn't see anything requiring um, the mask mandate, um, but it just seemed that that was the mentality that uh, was up there. Everybody yeah. seemed to have already accepted the idea that, you know, if you're going into public, you're putting on a mask, you know, no matter what it was. Yeah, very interesting. So to be clear on Powell and, and as people you may know that, I think um, Biden just reappointed him for another four, correct, four years, Chairman Powell. His only real power, if I understand, would be how much they quantitative ease, how much stuff they buy, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, right, stuff like that, and also the federal funds rate, uh, what the banks um, get charged to, to get money from the Fed. Is that correct? Yes, and how much the Fed will pay the banks to keep the deposits on reserve. So the Fed's power rests in its ability to alter interest rates. But the Fed is in a kind of precarious position because inflation has become more obvious over the past few months. You know, remember, the Fed has gone through the state of denial. You know, at first it was there is no inflation. We don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we don't see inflation as a problem. And then persistently, the numbers kept coming out and showing clearly 
not only was there inflation, but there was aggressive inflation in the economy. So then they shifted their position from, hmm. okay, there's no inflation to, yes, there is inflation, but we deem that it's only temporary. And they started to use the word transitory and kept repeating it that <laughs> it's going to evaporate in a matter of a couple of months. And then that didn't work. Uh, as of yesterday, Fed Chairman Powell has now said officially they are going to retire the word transitory. Oh, so, so what, what's he mean by that? Given up. Huh. So, in well, a, in other words, you know, okay, so you and I have talked about the difference between reality and perception. Yes, so, sir. you know, the perception the Fed has been pushing is that there's no inflation. And when that became hard to justify, they switched to saying, okay, we accept the notion that there's an inflationary economy, but it's just temporary and transitory, and we believe it'll dissipate. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to do anything or worry about it. Well, that also didn't work because it became very obvious to average people that not only were there signs of inflation beginning to grow in the economy, but that they were going to be sustained for quite a while. And it's not going away anytime soon. And, you know, we need to be prepared for the fact that we're going to have inflation visible in the economy going forward for at least the next year or two easily and the fed was forced to have to address this gap between what everybody was seeing and what they kept saying so to, so to change the word from transitory to you know maybe you're going to have this inflation more of it and boy the markets didn't like it yesterday what 600 points boom and already this morning down 400 points the markets don't like inflation why is that well, the problem that they're having is that the markets are trying to figure out ahead of time how fast the Fed will respond to inflation. So there are certain things that perform well during inflationary economies, but as interest rates are forced to go up, that is not positive for an awful lot of things within the equity markets. You know, the technology industry, for example, fares far better with low interest rates than higher interest rates. So if the perception is shifting, that the Fed is growing in its concern about inflation and it's going to more rapidly move to raising interest rates, the stock market will respond negatively to that. So the market is having a hard time almost on a day-to-day -day basis trying to split the hair between the Fed's comments to see if it can guess ahead of time and speculate how quickly will the Fed respond to the inflationary problem and begin to raise rates. Why, why do, I, why I do, know that we talked about this. Uh, why do, well, let, me, let me ask, and then you can continue. Why does technology like lower interest rates more? Uh, they thrive more on the cheaper money, you know, the ability mm -hmm. to get money cheap, and it helps those types of businesses a lot more than other businesses that can sustain a little bit more of a higher cost of borrowing money. So the technology markets particularly uh, favor low interest rates and cheap money. I see. So they're, again, you know, if, if you're playing this game behind the scenes and you're one of these, you know, uh, investor hedge fund dudes and, you know, you're trying to speculate on the future, you're going to pay close attention to uh, the guesswork and say, well, if the Fed's going to raise rates, Usually, traditionally, that doesn't fare well for technology stocks, so perhaps I should sell those and move out of those into other things. So, again, there's a lot of, uh, you know, scrambling going on. Everybody's trying to get ahead of the curve. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but the Fed's got a big problem, and the problem is uh, you, you talked about a little bit before about quantitative easing. You know, before the Federal Reserve can raise rates, it has to stop its asset purchases. Okay, let's let's uh, let's unpack that a second. The asset purchases, and I'll pull up the uh, the H four one is what they buy, like the treasuries, 
mortgage-backed securities or whatever else I can get yes. away with under the hood that nobody knows about. Um, and so why do they have to raise interest rates first before they do that? That's uh, the other way around. Oh, it's the other way around. They have to stop. Yeah. In other words, buying assets from the Federal Reserve uh, is the equivalent of pushing money into the economy. So it's an easing uh, example, and it's a way of easing economic environments to create more motion and activity. In other words, if you can continue to make money available and cheap, right. the thought process is, is that that moves the economy forward. Right. Raising interest rates does the opposite. It's like tapping on the brakes. I see. So before the Fed can raise rates... It has to first stop making these asset purchases. Otherwise, it would be like hitting the gas pedal and the brake pedal simultaneously. You can't do both. Why not? <laughs> well, the car won't know what to do. Well, <laughs> you know? yeah. What does it pay attention to? So it looks <laughs> you know? like here, even the last week, $1.4 trillion extra on the Fed's balance sheet. The last week. Yes. They haven't slowed down the asset purchases yet. Think? They have now gotten to the point <laughs> where, as of yesterday, you know, Fed Chairman Powell has suggested that they will now talk about more quickly reducing the asset purchases at their next meeting, theoretically, so that they can then get into a position, once they've stopped making asset purchases, then they'll be able to adjust interest rates higher if inflation persists. And what I found very interesting is the Federal Reserve went from redefining the word transitory. That was their first guess. You know, they, they accepted it was transitory, but then they redefined the word. And when <laughs> that didn't work, as of yesterday, they finally gave up the ghost and said, okay, we, we're going to stop using this word. We are retiring the word transitory. We try to pretend for a long time that this was going to be the case but nah, we realize that nobody's buying it so we're <laughs> going to stop even saying it. that's hilarious that is hilarious and he, he said retiring he actually used the word retiring the word several and, times and then then the markets went down 600 points yesterday well because the, i the think dow. the response the, is the dow that, did, yeah yes yeah. and i think the response is there that you know, if the perception is, if we're reading between the lines, and he is accepting the notion that inflation's real, well, which is a big leap for them, <laughs> uh, because at first, again, they were they were stunned by the inflation, which was bizarre because they created it by having printed all this money the past several years. Sure. Why they were surprised that there was inflation in the first place is beyond me. <laughs> and then once they got that far and accepted the notion. Then they try to push it off as saying, well, okay, uh, we recognize we were wrong. There is inflation, but it gets, it's going to go away. And that didn't work. So then they try to redefine transitory as being something that's going to be here for two years. And people started questioning that. So now they're saying, okay, we accept the notion that, all right, it's not even transitory. It's going to be here for a while. And again, the, the end result of all this and why this is important is the perception then is that it means that people are beginning to believe the Fed will be more aggressive about raising rates more quickly than if the Fed was not as highly concerned about inflation. I see. So everybody is now trying to adjust accordingly to the concept of this new paradigm of a higher interest rate environment. What, what, you're pretty keen on this stuff. I, I think um, the last time I checked uh, Shadow Stats, he's a pretty clever guy, you know, shadowstats.com. He looks pretty geeky at stuff. He claims the inflation rate is about 12 today. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. Do you think that's close, 12%? Oh, I think that's close. Uh, they're accepting a 6.8% inflation rate. So if they I mean, say 6, it's right. probably 12, right? 
it's got to be more because you know how they cook the books right no you know they don't account for the things that we all have to deal with you know health insurance and energy costs and food prices but you know uh, they were talking a lot about thanksgiving recently and how much you know the cost of turkey you know the thanksgiving meal had gone up in turkey and things like that and you know one of the supermarkets in new york used to offer free turkey if you spent a hundred dollars last year this year, you had to spend 400 to get the free oh, turkey. Oh, really? Good for them. Yeah. Uh, Fred Dashevsky no. is with us. His company is U.S. Coin Capital. I'll tell you more about it. And Fred, I have to tell you, your company has uh, come up in our conversations quite a bit the last few weeks. And that is because, and we'll give you the phone number again, uh, we've been talking about the, this great reset idea uh, with several people, uh, Martin Armstrong and other people, pretty, pretty <laughs> geeky guys, you know, Martin Armstrong and um, other folks that claim that this great, great reset is going to involve a Fed coin through the telephone, right, through the phone. It's going to be interlinked with a vaccine passport, and uh, they're going to issue Fed coins. And the, the, their basic idea, according to people we've talked to, they want to uh, dissolve all the debt. Get rid of your mortgage, get rid of your student loan, get rid of your credit card, and we're just going to take care of you. The, uh, you know, guaranteed income thing, all through the Fed coin, all through the, the phone, and we can control your behavior that way. That's what the people who really study this great reset idea think is coming. When? I don't know. But these people then have been saying that it's really important, in their opinion, that you get some kind of other than dollars or digits, if you don't want to play that game, to have and to hold. So we've been talking about the pre-65 coins that you have called currency silver, and these are dimes, quarters, halves, and silver dollars. So if these people are accurate and you want to have something other than a Fed coin or a dollar, you can get some of these, right? Tell folks what you have and how that works. Sure. You know, whether or not we have a reset of that massive resort, you know, or whether or not we continue to see this insidious inflation that just strips the value of people's money, I get calls from people every day, uh, especially people that are, you know, close to retirement or retirement age or slightly older, you know, who've watched enough in their lifetime to begin to realize that the money that they're holding is losing a lot of buying power. Yes, sir. And they're worried about it. So a lot of people are beginning to say uh, that they want to make sure that they establish at least some sound money as a basis for something they're putting away for their future. You know, obviously, I've been an advocate of this for 38 years now for the same fundamental reasons that I believe we have a flawed economic environment where we have an economy based on fiat money. Now, if there is some sort of global reset, which, again, I I find this hard to accept, but I mean, look, anything can happen. what happens to all the debt? What happens to all the people that are already owed money and how do they get paid and how does that get distributed? But if, if we're talking about changing the nature of money and forcing people, you know, with, with Fed coins and digital currencies, yeah, you talk about the control of an economy by government. You know, we have talked about this from time to time that, you know, if they start playing this game, they, for example, may say, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Patrick. We don't think you should order that pizza. We're going to cancel sure. that no. order because we think that your blood pressure is too high this week. I and understand. we've been monitoring your health. And therefore, you know, that that purchase is going to be denied. And since we control the money, you know, we can control that. We'll also, of course, have a system if that it does exist 
where your privacy, if there is any left, which I, I guess we have to accept the notion that it's probably gone anyway, but it's out the window completely. If we have sure. complete control over the currency, what privacy do people have left? So, but, but prior to that, uh, let's put the Great Reset thing aside. Um, Richard Mayberry was on the show. He's, uh, I really like him. He's been around a long time, and he's a, he's a big yeah, fan of, of numismatic coins. He's a big fan of those that, that you sell, the St. Gaudens and the ones in the plastic cases that are all graded. And this is something people can talk to you about, too, if they are starting to believe that this inflation thing is not transitory. Sure. Well, there's a couple ways to go. Uh, the pre-65 dimes and quarters and halves are generally sold loose. So, you know, they're not certified or graded. They're no. sold in large quantities. Uh, they're just loose change. They just happen to be made out of silver. And the availability of them is limited to, you know, what was produced up to 1964. So we have a fixed supply, but they're still very inexpensive and, and don't sell for a lot more than merely the metal that they're made of, which is amazing I when know. you think about that you these days. Yeah. But it's a viable way for people to put away money. I mean, in 1964, when we stopped minting silver coins, a quarter uh, you know, bought a gallon of gas or so, and five quarters was the hourly wage. That was the uh, honest earning wage. It was five silver quarters, which today at melt value is about, you know, $14, $15 or so, you know, per hourly wage, it's still a viable wage That's rate. interesting. So, yeah. you know, the buying power of silver coins has sustained itself over 50 or 60 years, while the value of paper money has continued to deteriorate and a lot of people are, are seeing this and they're thinking that if we continue to print more and more money because the government has not stopped deficit spending and the Federal Reserve continues to respond to all these economic problems by printing its way out of them, you know, people understand that that means a weaker dollar, a dollar that buys less. So perpetually adding gold to silver coins to one's investments these days makes a lot of sense. And those certified gold coins, like the $20 St. Gaudens, you know, now we're talking about coins that are $2,500 or so per coin. Right. That allows people to put away large portions of wealth in a physical form that's still easy to move around. You know, if you had two or $300,000 worth of silver coins, there's nothing wrong with that, but we're talking hundreds of pounds of silver. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So yeah. we can consolidate that with gold coins and make it something that, you know, you can take a box of 20 coins in an NGC graded box and, you know, you get a $50,000 of coins in a box that you can pick up with one hand and walk out the door with. It's portable and liquid and it makes it much more viable. But there is an aggressive accumulation of these kinds of coins going on around the country, more so than I've ever seen in, in my entire career. Wow. And this liquid idea, we get that question a lot. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> In your experience, after all these years, people are always able to sell these coins, these minted, uh, or, you know, graded in plastic cases. You're always able to sell them. There's always buyers. Sure. That right down to the junk silver, there's tremendous demand. And of course, it exceeds the available supplies so that there's constantly a market. Um, there always is a little bit of volatility in prices, you know, uh, week to week or day to day. We get a little bit of up or down movement in the price of gold and mm -hmm. silver versus right. the U.S. dollar. Um, but yes, liquidity has always been a viable part of what makes this market work. You know, keep in mind, we've had gold and silver coins in the United States longer then there's even been a, a stock market building in America. Before they built 
the market building on Wall Street, we had already been using gold and silver coins as a method of commerce because the Constitution had provided that was supposed to be the only legitimate form of money a government was supposed to issue to prevent exactly the kind of nonsense that we're experiencing now, which is that you and I are subject to a changing value in a paper note that we cannot control. Yeah. And I don't think that's right. I don't think the public should be subject to government whim and fiscal manipulation by a central bank to decide the value of the money that I have to work to earn. You know, if they're going to work and earn it and give it to me and they want to manipulate its value, fine. But if I have to be the one that puts out that labor and effort and then I earn that money on my work, my back, my sweat, my labor, who is it, you know, where do they get the authority and right to alter the value of my money? Well, they, they, they don't constitutionally, right? Now, article, what is it, one section that no state make Eight. other than this gold and silver payment in debt. But they get away with it because they do, right? Because nobody questions it pretty much, isn't it, right? Well, the understanding of what constitutes sound money has been lost through the generations. Right. Um, think about all the young kids who look at cryptocurrencies. I, I've always questioned one thing about the cryptos, well, many things, but one thing that always struck me as interesting is why do people even look at that as an alternative? In other words, if, if the dollar was stable and strong and you were confident as, a, as an American and saying, hey, I can earn my dollar and I'm not worried about its future value, you wouldn't feel compelled to look at any of these bizarre alternatives. So, you know, the, the idea that there even is this much interest, I mean, the market cap for cryptos is up to $3 trillion. I know, it's crazy, yeah. Right? So there are a lot of people who are speculating that, or in other words, questioning the stability of a dollar. And I find that encouraging on one side, mm -hmm. that it makes, at least tells me something that people are aware there's a problem. But the idea that that is even a concern for people is is wrong. I mean, why should we be worried we have enough things in our lives to deal with, right? We have our health, we have our families, we have our careers. Don't we have enough on our plate than to have to worry about whether my Money. government is going to sustain the value of my dollar when they're deficit spending, fighting over each other politically like children, you know, arguing over a toy and, you know, who's doing this and who's doing that and who's responsible for this. And, you know, instead of working toward a common goal, all we get is arguments back and forth between political parties, none of which gains anything. We still haven't solved the debt limit issue. We've pushed it off to this week. And, you know, I, I've been doing some back research. I went back and was looking at stuff that were coming up on anniversaries. Like December 16th is the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. Right. So I, I was thinking about that. Right. So the, the Stamp Act came out in 1760. And, you know, here it is. So, the you know, British Parliament says, if you want to write a contract on a piece of paper, it has to be a legitimate stamped piece of paper by Parliament. Otherwise, if it doesn't have the king's stamp, it's not legal. So your contract is not legal. And therefore, we can force everybody to use this paper. And it was the first time that a government used a uh, a method of raising money specifically just to raise capital as opposed to like a tax on sugar or a tax on tea, right. you know, which was a commodity issue. They wanted a tax to prevent smuggling of imported goods. So they didn't want you using Dutch tea. They wanted you to use British tea. Of course. And, you know, these battles back and forth infuriated the colonists to the point where, you know, there was a lot of pushback. In fact, the guys that were supposed to collect the money on the stamp tax and and simply send it to the king, refused to do it. And the public, you know, got so infuriated, they got creative. So, you know, when the, when the tea tax was imparted 
the Townsend Act came out and, and they started taxing things like, oh, you know, maple syrup and, and tea and paper and things like that. You know, the colonists were very clever. They dressed themselves up as as Native Americans. They called them savages in those days. Uh, they jumped on board the British ship because they knew the tax was going to be imparted as soon as the tea was taken off the ship and landed at Boston's Harbor. So they took the tea from the ship and they threw it right <laughs> into Boston Harbor. Now, they didn't hurt anybody. They didn't attack anybody. Nobody was killed. No shots were fired. No tea was stolen. The only tea that was dumped into the harbor was just enough to make the point and i mean when the news got back to you know parliament in great britain that there was this resistance they started sending troops to america and and forced the quarantining of troops onto the public so you know troops would show up at your door and the king would basically say to you you have to pay for sustaining these people in your home wow and they're there to enforce these new tax laws and now, so you're, you're basically infuriating the colonists who are already trying to push back on the idea that, you know, they're saying, hey, we're being taxed for things that we have no control over. We don't have a representative in parliament that's looking out for our interests. And that big pushback, you know, led to the American Revolution. And I think about the way the mentality was back then and how, you know, the public had enough. They finally said to the government that at the time was pushing and pushing and pushing hey we're done you know we're going to push back now and i and i find it interesting the parallels and you know looking at these health issues where yeah. these mandates are being forced and you start to get this kind of pushback i mean it yeah. just seems to me like we're revisiting the concept over and over yeah. again yeah and there's a lot of it freddie i mean they're in school boards around the country boy they're not having it and some of them have been very uh, successful at ousting school board members that want the kids to wear masks if they don't say they don't want them to. You know, it's all over the country. There's pockets here, of course. You know, there's some successes and some failures because of... Some you know, failures, yeah. Uh, I talked to a teacher the other day who lost her job because oh, she yeah. spoke out at a school board meeting. Oh, yeah. Boom. Yeah. All right. She spoke out at a school board meeting about her particular belief in, you know, the rationale of a mandated vaccine. They fired her. They fired her. I yeah. mean... At what point does America lose the First Amendment right? Where Where is our free speech? Why can I stand up and say, I don't agree with a, you know, political position being presented by my government? And if I do that, I'm under threat of losing my job? I mean, uh, th this is a strange time for America. But, I tell you, what. you know, I find the parallels between responses of colonists to pressure from parliament in the 1760s and 1770s and think about what that led to. I mean, it led to a complete revolution, yes. a point at which the public finally mm -hmm. said, we've had enough. You know, we're not taking it anymore. We're going to create our own country. And, you know, that's the way it's going to be. I don't expect we're going to see that kind of response here. But, you know, look at the the parallels between how far can you push the public before, you know, yeah. people finally yeah. say I've had yeah. enough. Well, and this monetary stuff. There's quite a bit know, of chatter. And, strip the value of quite money? a bit of chatter in Texas and Florida about someday getting out of this popsicle stand called the United States and doing their own thing. And I, you know, the way things are these days with the way you can communicate, I, I wouldn't surprise me if it happened. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But boy, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Right? Whew, man. Well, my point is simply that you know, you can only push so far. Yeah. And I think if we keep doing it, both monetarily and through these other types of band-aids on the health side, 
you know, you're going to get an aggravated public and there's going to be a response, you know, and like you said, in today's modern world with the methods of communication, you know, you can rally a lot of people very quickly very behind an quickly. idea. Have right? you seen More some so of the crowds around the world? Have you seen some of the crowds around the world on the huge? Sure. I saw a, 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 you know, Australia, they are just totally fascist. I mean, they're, t they're knocking on people's doors wanting to get vaccinated. Seriously. And I saw uh, a, a video Holland. as far as the eye could see in, in, uh, in Australia of people against these vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. More people than I've ever seen in a crowd in my life. You know? So, you know, that's Australia. You know, when you say right. Holland, they're, they're crazy too, right? Yeah, you know, places in Europe that are being forced, a lot of pushback again. And, you know, I, I'm just finding it disconcerting that we're getting these large pockets of people, these vast masses of people that are, you know, saying, wait a minute, you know, are we really going to accept this? And I think it was the same premises that existed back before the Revolutionary War. At, at what point do people begin to feel as if their government isn't responsive to them anymore? It is still a government of the people. So it is supposed to be responsive to the people's interests. And, you know, I think the deterioration of money, you know, has been a sore subject. It's, it's a, you know, really sore subject for me because we had protection against this kind of idea for so long and maintained it for so long. But somewhere along the line, you know, the government finally said, you know, the public be damned. We're going to go ahead and do what we're going to do anyway. And the public will have to just deal with it. And, you know, I, I worry about the future of America, especially if people are going to think that storing dollars is going to be a smart play going further into the future. And I think this is part of why there's been this huge growing interest of people to learn about the idea of constitutional money and sound money and why so many people have chosen to start accumulating you know, old silver coins and old gold coins. Yeah, Fred Jaszewski, uh, The Real World of Money, his company, if you'd like to talk to him about doing some, oh, uh, the currency or maybe some of the uh, um, uh, numismatic coins, and they're all graded in plastic containers and you just store them, you have to take care of them, don't let anybody steal them. His number is 800-878-2646. And we're very careful around here. We don't, you know, Fred is never, and Andy, when he was here, we never kind of, laid the groundwork that things are going to fall apart so you should buy gold, right? We've never done that, and you don't do that because it's just kind of fear porn, right? But as we... Yeah, I've never believed that, yeah, you yeah. know, the end result of this was a, you know, the, there are people who worry about it. And then again, I can certainly understand the concern, but some people have like jumped to the conclusion that the end result of all this nonsense is the dollar becomes completely worthless. In other words, you know, can you envision going to your local supermarket to buy your weekly food and you know you come to the counter and you know you pull out your cash and they look at you and say sorry we don't accept that form of payment anymore we really refuse the idea of accepting paper notes as a form of currency and you have to pay us in some other fashion that to me is an end result that would cause catastrophic uh, activity across the world. I mean, I think the entire economy around the world would come to a crashing halt if the U.S. dollar became completely worthless. So I don't see that that benefits the powers that be behind the scenes to where that is their end goal. I do believe, however, that inflating the dollar more and more over the years is a more appropriate way for them to accomplish the same result, 
which is effectively to enslave the public. You know, the more taxes that we have to pay because the government keeps running up deficits, the more the government relies on you and I to cover those gaps, Mm -hmm. the more money that they print, the weaker the dollar becomes. It's a it's like a cycle. And we become, you know, more ingrained into the having to work harder and harder for the government. Remember, it was only two generations ago, uh, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, one person in a family could work. An average hourly wage, whatever the minimum wage was at the time, and it was enough to sustain a healthy lifestyle for an average family. You know, nothing dramatic, but you could put a roof over your head, you could feed your family, you could put away a little money for savings, and it was sustainable. Today, you know, it takes about two and a half people, (laughs) roughly, uh, in an average family's, their incomes combined because of the tax increases. And I think tax increases are going to be something we're going to have to deal with going forward right. because the government's new plans of spending aren't financed by anything. And, of course, we're going to have to make up that money. And there's only two ways to do it. You know, you print the money or you tax the public more. So I would expect two things going forward. A dollar that's much weaker because we're going to print the crap out of dollars. And I think your taxes are going up. Yeah, And, and I think there's a good chance what I've seen uh, that the social security taxes could go up as well as means testing that Andrew uh, floated years ago that uh, there will be a day sure. when they say, you know, Fred, you're doing okay. You know, you don't really need, you don't need that much. You don't need right. that much. We'll just kind of cut you. And you know they'll do it if they get a chance. Right? Well, you know, think about the problem, right? If they can't afford to make the payments, they have to start figuring out how to do this. How do you you know, make it palatable to the public to say, you know, we had an obligation, we had a trust fund, in theory, (laughs) you have paid money, contributed it diligently all your life, you've been, you know, you had no choice, they've stripped that money, your FICA, Sukasui have been stripped from your paycheck week after week after week, under the premise that once you retire, you would get some of that money back in those payments. Well, if they can't make good on that obligation, and they know that that's the case, and they have to figure out how to sell this to the public, you know, talk about a knee-jerk response or a negative response from the public. If they came out flat out and said, hey, we're broke, we don't have the money, and guess what, you're beat, you're not going to get Social Security. Well, I I believe what's happening today as I do the research is that the Treasury is borrowing about $350 billion a year just to make the Social Security payments. So they're already yeah, underwater. They're effectively because, printing the yeah, money. Yeah, they're printing the money because there's no trust fund, as you and Andy have taught for years, right? They begin uh, with, what, the unified budget with uh, LBJ. They begin moving money into the general fund. Right. Uh, so, and it was dumped over in the Clinton administration, and pretty much ever since that, when you know Robert Rubin, when he was Treasury Secretary, replaced the money in the Social Security fund with, with government bonds and then stripped the government bonds from the fund and replaced it with IOUs, that some argued weren't even legal, but that's what's in the oh, fund so now. So at no the beginning, at the beginning, with Johnson, were there actually bonds? Do you, do we know? At first, there was cash. There was actual money. There was actually money, and then they then they went to bonds, and then IOUs, and then Rubin went back to bonds, and then they went back to IOUs. Yeah, so now it's a convoluted mess of, of paper, yeah. you know, but again, there's no actual money there. So in order to make those checks good that they send out weekly, the the short end of this is that effectively we're simply printing yeah. uh, all of that money in order to make those obligations good. Because I don't think they want to, 
turn to the public, the, you know, especially the elderly and say, you know, thanks for being a good American for the last 30, 40 years, working diligently and letting us take this money from your account. And now that it's our turn to turn it back to you. Yeah. We don't have it. That's not politically uh, uh, feasible at all. And it's not, not gonna, very viable. Not going to no. happen. Not going to happen. So we'll, we'll create the money we need. And, and, and then, like you talk about, means testing is one of several things that have been floated as a way of how, how could we possibly get some people maybe to accept the notion that they wouldn't accept their Social Security payments. You know, if we can convince 20%, 10% of the people hey patrick you don't need that money so how about if we don't pay you and instead you know we'll send it to somebody who doesn't earn the income you do you know that might go over but i again, suspect the they might try that and make it a uh, an option i think there would be some people that would do it you know they say sure i think so too you know, and, sure yeah you know, okay it's, i'll it's, chip in you know i don't need it yeah i'll chip in right but why is it even necessary? Of it's because they lied to us from the beginning, <laughs> you know, because they continue to pretend that they had a fund that they were financing. And now the reality is kicking in. And it's the same thing that we're experiencing today with this inflation nonsense. You know, the Fed is we're, we're not in an inflationary environment. Oh, OK, we are in an inflationary environment. OK, but it's temporary. OK, well, it's not temporary. It's going to dissipate in a few. Well, it's, it's not going to dissipate now, but it's OK because we're going to deal with it by raising rates at some point. It's okay. You know, they change the nature of how they try to address it um, because of pushback, because people are not accepting these notions so readily anymore. And I attribute it to things like, you know, let's say a podcast like this or the people that are really on the big national scale that are all standing up and saying, we're not buying the premise. Yeah. You know, we're not accepting the fact that the emperor is wearing a blue gown. We're not accepting it. The man is naked. We see it. So we're not <laughs> buying it. And, you know, if you're going to try to continue to perpetrate this this fallacy, uh, I'm sorry, we're not blind. You know, we see prices going up, which remember, we've talked about this dozens of times. By the time prices go up, that's the point at which it becomes visible. You know, the inflation is already an insidious problem at that point. Oh, I see. Because yeah. it's created when the uh, money's printed. Oh, uh, that's right. It's created when the money's printed. But when the prices go up, you've already... Have a, big, a long time, so there, that's the result of the printed money. So I guess you could argue, as long as you keep printing money, this inflation is going to get higher and higher more quickly. Would that be? It's not going away anytime no, soon. This idea that it's going to be gone by the second quarter of next year is another fallacy that yeah. they're going to have to retract. And now, why but would I, it go away? It was, why would it go away? Well, well, somehow the Fed is is theorizing <laughs> that. How do we address inflation? How do we make inflation go away? We raise interest rates. But again, as we talked about earlier, they can't do that until they stop their asset purchases. They're still, as of this month, buying $120 billion a month in assets. So how will the market respond when they're not doing that anymore? Hmm. And here's the worst part. Okay, here's where it gets really bad. Let's say the Fed stops its asset purchases. So it's no longer pumping this money to move the economy forward. And the economy responds negatively by slipping into a recession. The economy slows down because the Fed isn't pushing money into the economy. A slowing of the economy is a horrible problem for the Fed because it can't lower interest rates to stimulate economic right. activity. Because we're, what, like a quarter, a half percent now or whatever it is, the Fed funds are? Right. We're, yeah. we're at, we have negative yielding interest rates environment as we speak. Hmm. There's no room to go. So... The biggest fear that the Fed has is waiting too long, having the economy slip into a recession, and having no method 
to address that problem except to start printing a lot more money to go back into trying to move the economy forward, which would just simply exacerbate the inflation problem. Fred so inflation, in a way, yeah, is yeah. good. Yeah. If, if, if we have to have a little inflation, right? Isn't it one or two percent is sure. kind of ideal? Um, it's healthy. Is there is there any place right now from our listeners watching us either today or on the podcast or on the audio of getting some kind of return without a lot of risk? Other than gold and silver, um, is there any place to go? I mean, what do you get a CD or uh, it's what half percent or something like that? I don't know. Oh, I don't think a CD makes any sense. I don't think Treasuries make any sense because we have a negative yielding environment. Whatever the interest they're paying is being eaten up by the inflation, by the inflation. rate, even at the level they they accept that it is. So that's what a negative yielding that environment out. means. If you buy a ten-year Treasury, you're going to be losing money because inflation outstrips what they're going to pay you, correct? In interest. By a vast oh. margin. So the 10-year note right now is running around 1.5% or so. Wow. It's up from 1.3. So you get 1.5% return for holding a bond for 10 years. They pay you 1.5% a year with a 6.5% inflation uh, that they accept. Or, so, or more. Or more in the yeah. real world, right. So, so you're actually losing money yeah. by buying a bond. So, what so about, that doesn't work. Yeah, so what about, uh, depending on where you live, if they're willing to lend you money at 2 or 3%, I don't know what the 30-year mortgage is. Do you have any idea of the average 3%? Yeah, 3 4% or so. Would is that is that a smart move today for people that they can borrow money at 3% for 30 years? That seems like a good idea depending It's a great you know, idea. Because what the dollar is going to be worth 20 years from now, you'll be paying them back with jump change, right? In theory, right. you're paying it back in inflated money. So, you know, we used to talk about under 10% interest rates on real estate purchases, which was considered a great opportunity. Really? You know, these days when we're down at three, three and a half, four percent or so, you know, if you could borrow 30 year money at under 4%, all you have to do is see that kind of 4% per year increase in whatever you've bought and you're making headway. Hmm. But even if it stays at the same rate and doesn't increase in, in value, you know, the idea of borrowing three, three and a half percent money is, is brilliant because you are paying it back in inflated dollars over the years. So if you could put that money to use and see anything grow in value more, then, you know, you're certainly ahead of the curve. Yeah. And it is becoming perpetually more difficult to find the answer to that question. Where do you put money where you, where you can gain some sort of interest? The traditional response was, you park the money in a CD, you park the money in a treasury bond, and you could earn enough to stay ahead of inflation and actually gain ground. Now, that isn't the case. The options are becoming fewer and fewer. And I think this is the reason why so many people are speculating on a lot of Bitcoin and you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Unusual things sure. like, you know, like cryptos and yeah. stuff like that. I, I still believe gold and silver coins are the foundation for a percentage of people's wealth to make sure that you have protection because as inflation becomes more insidious, it forces the prices of these same kinds of coins higher and higher because of their fixed supply. And so, so it is a bright way for people to stabilize the value of their wealth. Speaking of that, John, he is in Seattle, out there, sleepless in Seattle. Thanks for the show. But do we see a day where the people, the money boys, as Andy used to say, will discontinue holding the spot prices of gold and silver down? Because we know that they are doing that ongoing, right? This is just a matter. As much as they can. As much yeah. as they can. I mean, 
the problem for them is that you know the price to gold for example is a reflection it's a mirror of the u.s dollar and i think you and i have talked about the reflection of the dollar based upon the price of gold and also that dollar index you know we've talked about that number yeah look how the dollar has rallied the last couple of weeks i mean it's over 96 again I think we were down at like 93 last yeah, time. That's huge. I'm looking at this morning, 96. 96. 96 and change, right? So wow. the problem is, is that around the world, people still playing the carry trade nonsense. You know, they're buying cheaper foreign currencies and trying to get higher interest rates by, you know, buying U.S. dollars because as bad as our economy is, the rest of the world is still you know, sucking wind compared to us. <laughs> so, you know, we still look like the best, cleanest, dirty shirt and laundry, yeah. and, you know, and, and that's perpetuating demand for the dollar. So, you know, the dollar is thriving on the world's weakness. Isn't but, crazy? you know, when that becomes the best that we can hope for is that the only reason our currency is strong is because the rest of the world is horribly weak. Yeah. You, you know, we're not getting any stronger. Everybody else is getting weaker. It, you know, it's like if you're lifting weights and comparing yourself to everybody else in class, and, they're getting, you know, they're you can lift weaker. 100 pounds and everybody else can only lift 80 and suddenly everybody else can only lift 50 and you're still lifting the same 100. Well, you certainly look like Superman, you know, but you haven't gotten any stronger than you were a week earlier. It's just that everybody else has gotten weaker. So that's a very interesting way to think about it. We're just not, the dollar is not up at a 96 US dollar index level because everybody else sucks. You know, pretty right. much, right? Not because we're doing any better. Wow. And this is why you see so much volatility, right? Mm. Because from day to day, what happens is there's this perception. And I think this is the key to me right now is that we are living in a world of perception. We're, we are so far removed from reality. We're so far removed from sound money that it's simply a matter of how do you feel? Patrick, how do you feel about the dollar? Do you feel comfortable? If you lose that confidence... There is nothing sustaining its value to where it will hold up. If the public begins to slip in their confidence in the U.S. dollar and begins to move to anything as an alternative, the dollar will fall apart very quickly. What would it precipitate that, that, that uh, loss in confidence? Just what? Well, anything could happen. Uh, you know, an economic crisis comes out of nowhere. The Fed miscalculates its inflation problem, which I believe it's going to do, by the way. So let me say this going forward. I think the Fed's going to screw up. I think they have waited too long to have addressed monetary policy. They should have stopped their asset purchases six months ago, maybe even a year ago. They waited way too long. They're now going to be forced to have to raise rates faster than they wanted. And what's going to happen is, is it's going to create knee-jerk reactions in the economy because they're going to have to bump up rates and the market's not going to like it. There's going to be negative responses to it. The stock market will find huge days of volatility like these 600, 800-point days where it drops. And I think that's going to become prevalent. And the public is going to become very disconcerted with the nature of this uncertainty. Hmm. So uncertainty can be caused by any number of things. If the government keeps running up deficits and the public begins to really recognize that the only way out is for them to print more money, or if the Federal Reserve messes up, waits too long, and mishandles the rising of interest rates and creates volatility, that will crack the market's stability. If something else happens, like you know, another variant and we shut down the economy again, again, remember now, the biggest fear going forward for the Federal Reserve is for the U.S. economy to slip into a recession when it cannot lower rates. Now, if rates are 10%, let's say, and we have a recessionary economy, 
the Fed can plummet the rates. They could drop them a point, two points, three points. And at some point, people will go, wow, it's getting cheap to borrow money. I'm going back into the market and I'm going to go buy goods yeah. and services. But where do you go when rates are almost at zero? You can't do that. So, well, Freddie, you we know, have a big problem. it really feels to me, just my opinion, I may be wrong, that the, the people controlling this administration, the globalists, right? They, I think they have on their, on their agenda to run this Omicron thing up the flagpole worse than any virus that's ever been out. I mean, if I, I look at some of the things going on in the media, National Public Radio is a good example. They are the mouthpiece for, you know, their, this agenda. And Fauci and, and Biden, they're, they're talking about this Omicron as being real, but they're going to ease us into it. Well, you know, maybe next year, but we're going to be okay for Christmas. And I've seen these people in the way they operate. And I don't think they're going to let this guy go. So there must be a lot of people that want to, they, they want to crash this thing. My opinion, very possible. Well, if they do, again, we have a real big problem because, again, when, when this started and the Fed had room to lower interest rates, you know, it had a method of, of dealing with it. When that failed, that's why they started quantitative easing. Yeah. Remember, that was a uh, an emergency process that the Fed started <laughs> because it had run out of room to lower interest rates. So it said, well, how else can we stimulate economic activity if interest rates can't be moved anymore? Well, what we can do is we can buy anything that pays a high yield, strip that availability off the market, leaving only low yielding interest rate uh, investments. And that will again be the equivalent of having lowered rates. That's why I said earlier that you can't raise rates until you stop making asset purchases. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how the market's gonna react when the Fed is done pushing this money into the economy. Will the real estate market continue to grow if the Fed isn't buying $40 billion a month in mortgage securities? Will the US stock market survive without the Fed buying all of these treasuries every month? You know, and if it doesn't, what options are left for the Fed? And to me, you know, the end result of all this is that the Fed always has that one option. We can print, we, we can, can print, print, we can print. So has the Fed been monetizing most of these new treasuries with this infrastructure and the Build Back Better and all that stuff that's going on? Is the Fed buying a lot, most of it? Not yet. Uh, the Fed has just been building its balance sheet. Nobody would have believed five years ago that the Fed would have nine trillion dollars on its I balance know. sheet. That's what, yeah. Nine. No one would have believed that. Nine trillion. I mean, we were at four and a half trillion before the pandemic started. I mean, that is an increase that is so unsustainable that, you know, for the Fed to manage that, I'm guesstimating, and I've been saying this for some time now, we're talking a good solid 10 years for a Federal Reserve, a central bank, to try to unwind that volume of. of nonsense on its balance sheet so it's that nonsense it's because it's just paper that they created dollars to buy but you've argued and i still don't quite understand and someday i'll get it sorry i'm a little slow on the on the draw why i i guess i've asked you this before why they can't just leave the paper there is because it's a loss of confidence for people to buy treasuries and uh, to use the dollar Fred, if they just leave right, it there? Because, you know, if people start watching that the Fed is the only thing sustaining the economy, if if it's responsible for all of the debt, I see. and it is the only buyer of these debt instruments, right. that's really problematic. Okay. Because all that tells people is that nobody else believes in this economy except the Fed. 
and the Fed is the option of last resort. They're huh. not supposed to be the driver of the economy. They're only supposed to be a backstop and you know help a little bit from time to time, but not be the sole source I of buying it. all the debt. And when you say unwind the balance sheet, give us an idea so, so we can begin to understand. It's a little geeky, but say they have, I don't know, a trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities that they created the dollars, gave to Wells Fargo, whoever. Um, how do you unwind that? What do they do with that paper? Sure. So think about it in terms of competition, right? If the Fed is out there buying all of these debt instruments, then nobody else has to. Okay. So if the bank wants to write you a mortgage, it can sell this debt to the Fed and it knows it has this buyer. But if the Fed can't do that anymore, or if it's trying to go the other way, right. it's trying to sell back into the economy all of this debt it's acquired, well, then the competition uh, is shifting. And suddenly now, you know, it becomes much more difficult for the banks to continue to make mortgage loans if they're going to end up having to hold these mortgages to fruition like they used to, not knowing that the Fed will be buying all this stuff off of their balance sheets and keeping it on their own. Well, so why can't they just why can't they just burn it? Well, again, it's you know it's the same reason why they don't want to just simply print the money and dump it into the economy all in cash instantaneously, <laughs> because by doing that, they're admitting the falsehood of the whole environment. You know, they're basically saying that you know. Oh, I see. The whole thing is just a monopoly, so we can just burn it. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So then, no one's going to buy the premise that that, that anything is legitimate. So the Fed has to maintain this sense of legitimacy in the economy by saying there's nothing wrong with the central bank holding $9 trillion on its balance sheet. I disagree with that wholeheartedly because, again, I believe it comes down to confidence. And I think at some point, people begin to question the Fed's ability to unwind a balance sheet that large and, again, become the sustaining uh, um, driver to an economy. You know, that is not a comfortable place to be. It's, it's like if you had... 20 or 30 people that would loan you money on any given month and suddenly you're down to one. There's one guy left to loan you money. That's really problematic. Your reliance on that one guy left to loan you money That's becomes so strong that you know you become very afraid that what happens if this person says, I've had enough. Let's now take, where do you go? Let's take this phone call. Good morning. You're on the air with Fred. Who's this? No, top of the morning, boys. This is Sean up in Washington State. Hi there, Sean. Uh, I, I'm glad you called because you you were on the air before you get to your question the other day, and you look at these things. You're a trader in all kinds of things and property, and you you told me that you thought there was a whole lot of um, foreclosures going on that no one's talking about. Is that what you said? Correct, and I, that's why I wanted to ask him. Okay, is there is there anything that you see here in two months? with all the foreclosures that will uh, be completed here because the bank started their foreclosures here three months ago um, after moratoriums uh, ended here or two and a half months ago. I don't know what the exact date is. Mm -hmm. uh, exact same thing of 2008 when they, with the exception, they haven't stopped all the lending yet. Do you see anything else uh, that could stop the major collapse or if, they just keep doing the lending, even if these foreclosures keep uh, go through. Okay. So we're not going to see a 50% drop in the market. What do you think, Fred? Well, here it comes down to, so who is going to accept the debt? 
right? Somebody is on the losing end of this if we start seeing foreclosures. And if the banks are not responsible because they've pawned the debt off to the government, you know, then the government is on the hook. But if it shifts back because the Fed stops making asset purchases of mortgages and the banks themselves will then become, you know, subject to the onslaught of the foreclosure market, I believe their willingness to loan money is going to slow down considerably. That's going to create some problems. You know, this could become a snowball effect. You know, you could have a self-perpetuating motion problem here where it begins to, you know, further and further exacerbate the same issue. So, yeah, that would be a big concern to me. And, you know, I worry about how sustainable the market's going to be once the Fed, again, stops intervening. How will the banks react? You know, again, I, I hearken back to the days where a bank wrote a loan to a person based upon the idea they were going to keep that loan and hold it to fruition for 15 right. or 30 years. Right. And they took responsibility for that by being very diligent about to whom they loan money. I don't see that the case now. I mean, they're loaning money to everybody and anybody, and that is going to create some problems. So, yeah, this could get could get really ugly, and it could be a substantial drop-off in real estate values, you know, if this market shifts to where we go back to the old days of, you know, you can't get a mortgage unless you really deserve it. Sean, how do you, um, do you have the resources to really know how that these, that these uh, foreclosures are in the works? I've heard that a lot of people did the forbearance thing during COVID with the promise by the banks to, you know, put the payments on the end but the banks, a lot of them, depending, reneged on it, and uh, that's been causing some foreclosures. Is that accurate? Uh, I hear that left and right and everything. I guess my thing, the difference between 2008 and today is hmm. I haven't seen anybody. I mean, Citibank and Cisco Bank are the only two that i found so far that shut off their lines of credits, and that was the telltale sign back in 2008 when, all the banks turned off their lines of credits, and then they finally, after they turned off their line of credits, then they stopped, you know, stopped lending to even, you know, 700 credit scores, 750 credit scores. And, mm. and I, I guess my thing is, I know there's foreclosures out there. I know there's more than for, more foreclosures out there, but if the bank or if the Fed keeps lending money, is this going to be different than 2008, where we won't have a collapse if the if the banks never turn off the lending spigot because the feds just keep and just keep, keep doing anything. it, keep buying the mortgages, Fred? right? Yeah. That, yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think the difference thing. between now and, and two thousand eight is the amount of leverage, right? So in two thousand eight, not only did you have asset purchases going on, but you had this monstrous leverage activity. Remember that they had, you know, bundled mortgages together and split the mortgages into the uh, the separate payment methods, the interest payments, the principal, and then the administrative fees, and bundled those together. And then, uh, and then created an environment where they would uh, securitize those as a separate investment package. They sold those to hedge funds and pension accounts all over the world. And people were buying this stuff where, you know, the underlying value was leveraged 30, 40, 50 uh, times over the, you know, the actual value. And that's real been not being done now? Not much today? Not to the extent it was in 2008. Okay. You know, the extent of it in 2008 was so massive that you know when it imploded remember it brought down major investment companies yes, and major sir. hedge funds and you know it collapsed lehman and things of that nature occurred because you know that leverage was so far extended it was so far out of line that once you began that retraction it was devastating to the economy and then everybody who bought bonds from those companies because the 
uh, rating agencies had accepted the notion that these were AAA and therefore they could go into, you know, teachers' pensions and they could be distributed all over the world. And people were buying these things without any understanding of what really was happening or what they were buying. I don't really see that as extensive now simply because, well, I guess we've learned that lesson you know, of the extent of the um, mortgaging of it and the financing of it has been a little bit different, but we still face the same basic kind of problem. I just think it won't be um, a, a worldwide economic devastation. I think we'll see internally, you know, real estate prices, which are ridiculously overvalued now, but again, it's coming from two things. There is a supply problem and there is an issue where people are looking at the value of money and saying, hey, I think I'd rather buy a piece of property than holding three or $400,000 worth of cash. Hmm. But I think it'll be less um, problematic than it was in 2008 because we're not as heavily leveraged in this environment as we were back then. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the phony more of, of, of breaking it off. Yeah, that's what I haven't looked into is if they've broken them up into pieces. And, yeah, and they, they value them, them off. Sean, that's right. Securitized. There was a lot of that going on, boy. And that's why this right. fellow, was, uh, Dr. Berry in the big short, that's why he made all his money because he saw it. <laughs> he saw it. He, he saw he it. He said he did the math. And just he did said, the math. There's no <laughs> way this is sustainable. <laughs> and once this cracks, what he foresaw was that there was not enough financial uh, capability to absorb this backwash. And this is the kind of problem I have with the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. It's an equivalency problem. There is nothing out there. There is no organization. There is no country. There's no central bank. Nobody has the ability to absorb $9 trillion worth of debt. There is nothing that big that can absorb that quantity of debt. So it has to be eased back into the economy little by little. Huh. But again, if the Fed is pushing that stuff back in, it can't be buying it at the other side. And again, I think once the Fed stops intervening in the economy, we're going to be facing a little bit sense of reality that's going to catch a few people by surprise. Yeah, I mean, if, if they're not, if the Feds are, I, I don't know what could ha what they could do on buying up the foreclosures. Uh, they could. You know, they, they, go they could, yeah. Sure, so they could start yeah. that process on top of everything else they're doing to intervene in the economy. You know, but again, we're perpetuating uh, obviously a false game here that at some point, you know, we're going to have to pay for it one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Shawnee. Well, thanks right. for calling. Good questions. Take Thank care, you. guys. Okay. Bye. 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 Yeah. yeah. So again, you know, what this boils down to is is this perception, right? Um, are we comfortable with the current environment? And and obviously, there's a lot of this stuff. It's you know somewhat inside baseball or geeky, as you like to call it. And there's no question it is. It's a complicated mechanism that's being applied to an economy because we're lying to the public. So, and we have to consistently address the gap between what people see in reality and what the government is trying to perpetrate as what is their position of what's happening. And the more of this difference between the two that becomes apparent you know, the before the Fed has to deal with it. And when we're running a false like this, you know, you know, it's a shell game. And at some point, people will catch on and, and feel that lack of confidence and begin to do things that will not help the Fed's position. I do not envy the Federal Reserve. They put themselves in a corner. 
They don't have a mechanism to get out of it. There's no easy solution to this. They're being caught constantly in their lies. <laughs> you know, the lie that there was no inflation, the lie that inflation was transitory. Now we're going to redefine it transitory. Now we're going to retire the word transitory. All of this nonsense is the difference between what they hope people will believe and what people are seeing in their real life experience. Yes, sir. It's hard enough for people to see that prices are going up. They know inflation is uh, in the economy. And, and again, not going away anytime soon. Well, I think there's a lot of that going around. There are forces that want people to not believe their eyes. You know, this whole pandemic thing. Right. I mean, there weren't bodies, there weren't body bags, there weren't, you know, the numbers don't work. You know, the amount of people dying and there was never, it was just, They've just been lying about this whole thing. and But they don't want you to believe what you see, right? Just believe what we tell you. And this is huge. I think, it's, Fred, it's really going on with everything in our culture today. You know, this authority. It is, and this is why I, I yeah. harken back to, okay, so what really is real? Yeah. What is true? What's the truth? Right? What is the real truth? Yeah. What is real? And when it comes to the one thing that I know more about than anything else I know about, it's money. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there is truth in money in the form of sound money. Sound money. There's a reason that gold and silver have been around for 6,500 years. There's a reason that people have done well accumulating gold and silver coins as a way of protecting their wealth. The more that people realize the flaw in this paper money and all the manipulation going on and the fact that at any moment, you know, the game could just simply implode on itself and no one's going to be surprised except the Fed. The Fed will be shocked. Oh, well, we don't understand why the dollar is collapsing or why people have lost <laughs> We're confidence shocked. We're in the fact that the government's <laughs> carrying $31 trillion worth of debt. And we've been printing trillions of dollars a month for wow. two and a half years. And, and now it's creating inflation. We're, we're shocked by all of this. We're shocked. And that, that $31 trillion number, you know, I look at the debt clock and I think they're cooking that book because, I mean, I just don't see it going up uh, much. You know, uh, I, but this, uh, here's an email. This is interesting. This is from a listener. This is a tweet that's been going around. Um, so let me read it to you. $22 trillion in debt owed by Americans to the Fed and $1.47 trillion debt to the China were settled in full by the Global Repository a few years ago. Fed IRS has kept these settlements secret. That's not true, is it? Uh, I'm not sure what they're referring to there, to be honest. Well, I don't either. Plus, w Americans don't own the Fed $22 trillion. They only own... Well, when they say Americans, you know, again, you, you could argue that the public is basically on the hook for all of the debt that we have. So we're carrying $31 trillion worth of debt. It is the public, in the end, ends up paying for that, whether it's through higher taxes or through inflation. So... You know, you could certainly make the argument that it's the public on the hook, and I'm not sure if the 22 trillion referred to what the debt was at that point, or you know what they're counting. And again, we know that the I 31 trillion kind of that know. we're talking about doesn't include a lot, uh, you know, unfunded liabilities and other things the Fed keeps off of its books and balance sheets that you know would make that number two times that much, maybe three. But times it says that here much, that the, the debt to China has been settled, but. I don't think there's any evidence of that, well, is it? What debt to China? Well, the, the, the uh, China owns a what? Sure. They own a trillion or so in treasuries. That debt. Yeah, they still have that. They, still they have haven't. That. They haven't cashed that in, and that hasn't been paid out. If, so I don't. I don't know what they're referring to there. Here's a second part of it: quantum financial system. You know QFS. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, I've why, heard of that. Why did the IRS send 780 billion of American income taxes to the 
Rothschilds? I don't know. <laughs> uh, again, I'm not sure what the specific reference to it, it, that's being made there is, is referring to. So I don't know how to comment on that. Uh, you know, when you say the Rothschilds, again, you could be referring referring to their banks, central um, banks, and all the of that they yeah. own. You know, so there, there's a lot to unpack there. So that I, uh, that idea has been going around for years that our taxes go to the big boys at the top. That's well, it. in essence, sure. You know, if it you think about the financing and, you know, it, it in the end, it all floats up to those that we owe the money to <laughs> right. and those that control the money, which is why I've also suggested that I don't believe in the collapse of the dollar because it doesn't benefit anyone to see the dollar worthless. Nobody would collect on any of the debt that's owed. And then, again, the entire world's economy would come to a screeching halt. We, we import so much of the goods and services, including food. You know, by buying it with U.S. dollars. So if the dollar is worthless, what are we buying? You know, what are we paying? Could for there be forces though that want to turn us into a pinko, commie, socialist, Marxist, third world country? Oh, sure. I mean, there could be, right? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a lot oh, of yeah. evidence for that. Letting people in over the border with nothing, you know. Um, Listen, in the in the Civil War period, uh, you know, three or four percent of your money going to taxes was considered abhorrent. And, you know, people used to speculate on what would happen if it got to 20 or 30 percent. And people used to say, at what point are you abject, objectively a slave? Right. Right. Over 30 percent of your income going to your government. I mean, at what point does it become insane? Is it 40 percent, 50 percent? At what point does the public say, Enough. you know, I yeah. no longer have a free life. Right. Yeah. I yeah. work for my government. That's all I'm doing. And your I, property I labor taxes hard. And all the other taxes. Right. It's huge. Half my money goes to, yeah. you know, yeah. the government one way or the other. And why is that necessary? Because the government can't stop deficit spending. Why can they deficit spend? Because they have a central bank behind them that will print whatever amount of money they don't have. It all comes back to the same fundamental problem. Yeah. We've removed ourselves from the concept of sound money, and it allows for all these shenanigans to continue. And I think the public shouldn't buy into it. The public shouldn't accept this for their own wealth. Let the government play that game. But for you, me, and the rest of the people out there, Buy gold and silver coins and put them away for your future. <laughs> you will be very happy you did. <laughs> you will be, right? I mean, that's not just to sell them for you, but you will be. I mean, the numbers are you there. You need that financial stability. The numbers you can't are there. count on this no. dollar if no. we're going to keep printing the crap out of yeah. them. It's just insane. And, you know, again, how far was it long ago that, again, those five silver quarters were the hourly wage in 1964? I've always liked this idea, too, in gold, before we go, Fred, is back in what 1850 what it cost for a good men's suit was that was 1933 1933 yeah a man's suit was 20 bucks 20 bucks okay now you bucks. now you have a 20 tailored man suit i mean that was a quality a suit, quality tailored man suit and you now know, you have a 20 dollar gold piece the St. gardens and what what can you get for it Twenty five hundred dollars, you know. I mean, you can you do pretty well. Do a pretty nice suit. You can yeah, look sharp for twenty five hundred bucks. <laughs> so you know, what yeah. does that tell you? You know, what does that tell you? Yeah. All right, sir. What do you have there at your in your business place with uh, all your big team uh, there at uh, U.S. Coin Capital? What kind of things yeah, can you offer as far as product? More people. What do you got to our fold? Um, well, I've got bags of silver, dimes, quarters uh, available again. Um, where inventory there has been a little bit sporadic. Um, by the way, people who have been taking advantage of any of these price dips that happen because we get these dollar rallies on this nonsense, 
they've been very, very sharp in doing so. So take advantage anytime the dollar rallies and it pushes the price of gold and silver temporarily down a little bit, buy on the dips. But um, we have had uh, price premiums, in other words, the value over melt content on silver coins has been steadily increasing. That's a reflection mm. of demand exceeding the availability. But I do have bags of silver dimes, quarters, and halves readily available again. And we do have groups of gold coins that I can assemble in different uh, portions for people to put together portfolios. Uh, we do free consults. So anybody wants to give us a call, we'll be happy to walk you through the process, You know, answer whatever questions you have, and then direct you on to how to build a, a good, consistent, growing portfolio in gold and silver coins. Uh, and your number there is, I just pulled it off the screen, but it's 800-878-2646. which is hot coin, right? If you spell it out. No, that's the other one. That no, would be 468. That <laughs> works. That number still is live. Oh. But 878-COIN. Uh, 878-HOT-COIN, is it? Hot-COIN? It's just 878-COIN. Oh, 878-COIN. Yeah, 1-800-HOT-COIN would be the 468. Oh, I see. But you'll find them. Which, and, again, that number's still live. And you guys will talk to people and hang, and you know, li and, and listen to them and see what they want to do, right? And there's not a lot of places that are going to yeah, do we'll that. Yeah, we'll try to tailor the portfolios for the people so that, you know, it's not a blanket thing. It's not appropriate for everybody. You know, you have to have money that you can set aside for four or five years or so to really make this viable. It's not a short-term speculation on, you know, buying something today with the thought that silver's going to $200 an ounce next week. It's about long-term wealth protection. But hmm. we do talk with our clients carefully about, you know, where they are, how they're invested, what their goals are, and what's what makes sense for them. But I am finding it very interesting. We are getting a lot of calls from a lot of people who on their own have reached these conclusions that inflation is going to be a significant mm -hmm. problem. Right. And they're worried about the wealth that they've accumulated and making sure they protect it. Yeah. Good job, Fred. A, a wonderful show today. Thanks for being here. Uh, and his name My is Fred pleasure. Dushevsky. Great to see your smiling face, Patrick. Yes, sir. And uh, folks, when you call him, tell him that uh, you heard us here and uh, he'll take extra good care of you if that's even possible. Thanks, Fred. Uh, say hi and we will see you, I think, I guess we'll see you the first of the year, right? Yeah. Whenever. Uh, yeah, I can't believe it's the end of 2021 already. Well, let me look at the calendar. Went. When is the first Wednesday or first Monday? January 3rd, right? Is it? Really? Let me look. January yeah, yeah, I already got you on the list there. January 3rd, we'll see you. Will you take, stay out of trouble? Are you going to stay there or go anywhere or keep the business open uh, over the I'm holidays? I'm going to stay here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you'll keep, uh, you'll take a little bit of time off or can folks call during the holidays? I hope to. Um, we try to squeak in a little bit of break time, you know, somewhere maybe between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. We might take a few days down. But, um, you know, listen, I've been at this for 38 years. So I think once in a while we need to take a couple of days yeah. to sort of decompress. Yeah, we'll take a few days off. We've too. had a very, very active year. I mean, a very active year. So um, it's been good. And we are encouraged by the thought process that's spreading. And I think more people are becoming um, aware in a, a whole variety of different fashions, but I, I'm encouraged by that. And I think uh, a good education is certainly going to go a long way for people. Indeed, sir. Well, Fred, say hi to everybody. We love you. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you soon. All right, Patrick. Be well. Bye-bye. Same to you. Fred Dashevsky and the real world of money. And uh, we'll put up a slide again in case you want to get his number, which is 800-878-2646. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. And join uh, John or uh, Paul, um, whatever, Lando, uh, 
Uh, I don't even, I don't remember whether it's John Paul or Paul John or whatever it is, Londo. And uh, he's a really interesting fellow. And uh, I think we're going to have fun. We'll talk about all different kinds of things uh, within the world of health and nutrition and spirituality thing. Uh, let me do thing. And uh, we're going to be uh, talking with uh, Mr. Lando um, in about 35 minutes. So stick around, stick around, stand there, stay there, and uh, we'll see you real soon. Thanks for your support. We did uh, thanks for your, uh, all your purchases on the Black Friday thing. And our, our businesses and our companies are really got great products. So look at our website, see what you can do and if you're interested in some things on OneRadioNetwork.com. Okay, see you in about a half an hour right here. Let us know if we can help. My email, Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Take care. May the blessings be. Know the source on One Radio Network.